Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show number 291. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Tell you what's coming in today's show. First up we have Cheapskates with Adam Pjord, our very own assistant editor there. Then the main fiction is The Night Whiskey by Jeffrey Ford. And right at the end we have Science News, Mr JJ Campanella. How about that? I think straight away we'll jump into Adam and Cheapskates. Adam, sir. Greetings to my fellow coach class passengers aboard the Starship Sofa. My name is Adam, welcoming you to Cheapskates and bringing you reviews of free science fiction ebooks and audiobooks. Well, Cheapskates, as you've no doubt noticed, some of my selections from the last few months have been rather, um, short. At least in terms of page count. There are many, many reasons for this, but without delving too much into my personal life, Suffice to say that I haven't had a lot of time to read lately. However, I have managed to finish a real doorstop of a free book for you. At least it would be a brick if there were such a thing in ebooks. For May, we'll be taking a look at Spinward Fringe Broadcast Zero Origins by Randolph Lalonde. At this point, I'm going to propose a new law of nature. Call it... Adam's inverse length law. This states that the length of the work being reviewed is inversely proportional to the length of my resulting review on it. In short, don't expect this one to be a long one, folks. To start off, you should know that I nearly stopped reading Spinward Fringe. Twice. Without giving away too much, 
this was because after the first chapter, I discovered that the story I thought was being set up is not what was actually occurring. I set it aside for a while after that, a little miffed, but then decided to give it another chance, only to have another switcheroo pulled on me a few chapters later. I swallowed deep after that, took a deep breath, and decided to forge ahead and see it through anyway. And generally speaking, I'm glad I did. In Spinward Fringe, we follow the first-person narrative of Jonas, who lives on a massive space station called Freeground. From description in the book, Freeground is a haven for freedom, which I suppose goes without saying, and also for democracy, largely because of its location in the middle of nowhere. That's also the reason given for the station's success. It acts as a location for stopover, refueling, and restocking from one destination to another. Our protagonist, Jonas, is a war veteran for Freeground, now working as a glorified air traffic controller for freighter traffic through the station. Bored, he enters a space battle simulation. He and his friends, most known only to him online by their pilot handles, advance in their skill to the point that they decide to hack into the real military simulators and take the place of the computer AI. They do so well that, well, they get caught, and are given an ultimatum. Crew an ancient starship with some interesting properties and upgrades on an off-the-books mission to explore regions unknown to them and send back any useful information or technology. Or go to prison. They take the obvious choice, of course. Jonas, as the leader of the online group, is commissioned in as the ship's captain, christened the First Light, and they go on to have all manner of adventures fighting against forces of galactic evil. While this setup of average Joe to ship captain does allow for some personal wish fulfillment of someone handing me the keys to a starship and saying, it's all yours, Come back with a full gas tank. But it's a bit problematic in the context of the story. The free ground military seems a little too willing to put what are, essentially, glorified video gamers, and law-breaking ones at that, in charge of a real warship. Conversely, Jonas and his crew seem a little too willing to accept what proves to be some manipulative and questionable terms. Some aspects of the science in this science fiction are also a tad odd. For example, the first light is made of a metal that regenerates itself like a living organism. Kind of a neat concept, but it left me wondering how such a material could possibly work. If a chunk of your hull is vaporized, how on earth is a ship making new matter out of seemingly nothing? The existence of free ground itself strikes me as a bit suspect, too. A way station makes sense, but having a fully self-sustaining space station in completely empty space? Well, it boggles me a bit how that even gets going. You'd think it needs some source of energy nearby. Still, the battle scenes have some creative ideas, including getting a boost from a nuke and destroying a target with a transportation wormhole. And as they progress, the crew fixes up the ship in a way that always made sense to me with the bridge at the heart of the ship under extra shielding, and utilizing a view screen that surrounds the bridge, covers the ceiling, and lines the floor. The strength of the collection, 
did I mention it's actually a trilogy? Are the fun and distinct personalities of the characters. I also really enjoyed the romance set up between Jonas and his chief engineer, Ian. She's a strong woman, and it's good to see the damsel come to the rescue of the knight in distress for once. Those chapters, in which Jonas and most of his senior crew are captured, are some of my favorites of the book. It's telling, I think, that these chapters of psychological battle won out over some great battle scenes. In terms of style, there is some awkwardness. For example, Lalonde occasionally writes in large sets of dialogue, with no interrupting description between, making it feel more like a movie script than a book. Also, the actual lines sometimes come off a bit stilted, like a stage of Hamlet's taking turns with soliloquies. Lalonde goes into a lot of detail about the technical aspects of the ship and the specific maneuvers in a battle, down to particular numbers. In some ways, it's a good change from the technobabble typical of science fiction. But, well, sometimes you'd like to see a little less of how the ship is going in with guns ablazing, and just let the shooting get started. Finally, I wish that there had been some more resolution for my commitment to a long story. Jonas has a sophisticated AI who winds up in a interesting situation, and I would have been interested in how that ended. And the last scene itself is completely open-ended and, well, unsatisfying. I suspect that the reason is that the answers are in the ten or so more novels in the world of Spinward Fringe. This also explains why Lalonde can put out such a hefty book for free. There's much more where this came from, and it's an effective tease. But if you don't mind being teased and enjoy yourself some good space opera, you'll do well to give Spinward French a shot. As usual, check out my website at cheapskatesreview.wordpress.com to find links to the book. All right, that's all for today, Cheapskates. The music is from Regarding Your Brains by the great Jonathan Colton under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial license. You can find more of his work at www.jonathancolton.com. This is Adam reminding you that free doesn't have to mean cheap. What can I say, Squire? Thank you very much. A little bit of a hiccup last week with that one, but we got it out eventually. Adam, thank you so much. Next up is the main fiction, and it's by Jeffrey Ford. Now, we've played a couple of stories by Jeffrey Ford, but if anyone doesn't know who Jeffrey Ford is, he is the author of the novels Physiognomy, Memoranda, The Beyond, The Portrait of Mrs. Carbuke, The Girl in the Glass, The Cosmology of the Wilder World. His story collections are The Fantasy Writer's Assistant and The Empire of Ice Cream. He's also got The Drowned Life and The Crackpot Palace. His short fiction has appeared in numerous journals, magazines, anthologies, from The Mad Magazine to The Oxford Book of American Short Stories. Jeff is recipient of the World Fantasy Award, the Nebula Award, Shirley Jackson Award and the Edgar Allan Poe Award. In addition to writing, he's been a professor of literature 
and writing for over 25 years and being a guest lecturer at Clarion Writers Workshop, the Stone Coast MFA programme and the Richard Hugo House in Seattle. This summer he will be participating in the Antioch University Writing Workshop. I don't know if I pronounced that right, mind you. He lives somewhere in Ohio. Jeff, you're a star, sir. Now this story is narrated by Raja Khanna. And again, we've played a couple of... It's a nice pairing, Raj and Jeff Ford's work as well. We've played some stories by... Or played some narrations by Raj before as well. Now, I might getting this wrong, but I'm sure Raj is one of those members of, you know, the Fluid Writers, Workshop, Fluid Writers Workshops that David Mercurio Riviere was part of. I'm sure Raj is a, a member of that little group as well. I'll put links onto everyone's site. But I'll just like to say, Starship Sova is very proud to present... The Night Whiskey by Jeffrey Ford All summer long, on Wednesday and Friday evenings after my job at the gas station, I practiced with Old Man Witzer looking over my shoulder. When I'd send a dummy toppling perfectly onto the pile of mattresses in the bed of his pickup, he'd wheeze like it was his last breath, I think he was laughing, and pat me on the back, but when they fell awkwardly or hit the metal side of the truck bed, or went really awry and headed sprawled on the ground, he'd spit tobacco and say either one of two things. That there's a cracked melon, or get me a wet back. He was a patient teacher, never rushed, never raising his voice or showing the least exasperation in the face of my errors. After we'd felled the last of the eight dummies we'd earlier placed in the lower branches of the trees on the edge of town, he'd open a little cooler he'd kept in the cab of his truck and fetch a beer for himself and one for me. You did good today, boy, he'd say, no matter if I did or not. And we'd sit in the truck with the windows open, pretty much in silence, and watch the fireflies signal in the gathering dark. As the old man had said, there's an art to dropping drunks. The main tools of the trade were a set of three long bamboo poles, a ten-foot, a fifteen-foot, and a twenty-foot. They had rubber balls attached at one end that were wrapped in chamois cloth and tied tight with a leather lanyard. These poles were called prods. Choosing the right prod, considering how high the branches were that the drunk had nestled on, was crucial. Too short a one would cause you to go on tiptoes and lose accuracy, while the excess length of too long a one would get in the way and throw you off balance. The first step was always to take a few minutes and carefully assess the situation. You had to ask yourself, how might this body fall if I were to prod the shoulders first, or the back, or the left leg? The old man had taught me that generally there was a kind of physics to it, but that sometimes intuition had to override logic. Don't think of them as falling, but think of them as flying, said Witzer. And only when I was actually out there under the trees and trying to hit the mark in the center of the pickup bed did I know what he meant. You ultimately want them to fall, turn in the air, and land flat on the back, he told me. That's a ten-pointer. There were other important aspects of the job as well. The positioning of the truck was crucial, as was the manner with which you woke them after they had safely landed. Calling them back by shouting in their ears would leave them dazed for a week. But as the natives had done, breaking a thin twig a few inches from the ear worked like a charm, a gentle reminder that life was waiting to be lived. When his long-time fellow harvester, Mr. Bo Elliott, passed on, the town council had left it to Witzer to find a replacement. It had been his determination to pick someone young, and so he came to the high school and carefully observed each of us fifteen students in the graduating class. It was a wonder he could see anything through the thick, scratched lenses of his glasses and those perpetually squinted eyes, but after a long deliberation, which involved the rubbing of his stubble chin and the scratching of his fallow scalp, he singled me out for the honor. An honor it was, too, as he'd told me. You know that because you don't get paid anything for it. 
He assured me that I had the talent hidden inside of me, that he'd seen it like an aura of pink light, and that he'd helped me develop it over the summer. To be an apprentice in the drunk harvest was a kind of exalted position for one as young as me, and it brought me some special credit with my friends and neighbors, because it meant that I was being initiated into an ancient tradition that went back further than the time when our ancestors settled that remote piece of country. My father beamed with pride, my mother got teary-eyed, my girlfriend Darlene let me go to third base and part way home. Our town was one of those places you pass but never stop in while on vacation in some national park, out in the sticks, up in the mountains. Places where the population is rendered in three figures on a board by the side of the road. The first numeral, no more than the four, and the last with a hand-painted slash through it and replaced with one of lesser value beneath it. The people there were pretty much like people everywhere, only the remoteness of the locale had insulated us against the relentless tide of change and the judgment of the wider world. We had radios and televisions and telephones, and as these things came in, what they brought us lured a few of our number away. But for those who stayed in Gatchfield, progress moved like a tortoise dragging a ball and chain. The old ways hung on with more tenacity than Roletta Clome, who was 110 years old and had died and been revived by Dr. Kvench eight times in ten years. We had our little ways and customs that were like the exotic beasts of Tasmania, isolated in their evolution to become completely singular. The strangest of these traditions was the drunk harvest. The harvest centered on an odd little berry that, as far as I know, grows nowhere else in the world. The natives had called it Bakimi Atatsi, because of its shiny black hue and the nature of its growth. Settlers had renamed it the Death Berry. It didn't grow in the meadows or swamps as do blueberries and blackberries. No, this berry grew only out of the partially decayed carcasses of animals left to lie where they'd fallen. If you were out hunting in the woods and you came across, say, a dead deer, which had not been touched by coyotes or wolves you could be certain that the deceased creature would eventually sprout a small hedge from its rotted gut before autumn, and that the long, thin branches would be thick with juicy black berries. The predators knew somehow that these fallen beasts had the seeds of the berry bush within them, because although it went against their nature not to devour a fallen creature, they wouldn't go near these particular carcasses. It wasn't just wild creatures, either. Even livestock fallen dead in the field and left untouched could be counted on to serve as host for this parasitic plant. Instances of this weren't common, but I'd seen it firsthand a couple of times in my youth. A rotting body, head maybe already turning to skull, and out of the belly like a green explosion, this wild spray of long, thin branches tipped with atoms of black-like tiny marbles, bobbing in the breeze. It was a frightening sight to behold for the first time, and as I overheard Lester Bildab, a man who foraged for the deathberry, tell my father once, No matter how many times I see it, I still get a little chill in the backbone. Lester and his son, a dim-witted boy in my class at school, Lester II, would go out at the start of each August across the fields and through the woods and swamps searching for fallen creatures hosting the hideous flora. Bildab had learned from his father about gathering the fruit, as Bildab's father had learned from his father, and so on, all the way back to the settlers and the natives from whom they'd learned. You can't eat the berries. They'll make you violently ill. But you can ferment them and make a drink, like a thick black brandy that had come to be called night whiskey and supposedly had the sweetest taste on earth. I didn't know the process, as only a select few did, but from berry to glass I knew it took about a month. Lester and his son would gather them and usually come up with three good-sized grocery sacks full. Then they'd take them over to the Blind Ghost Bar and Grill and sell them to Mr. and Mrs. Beauchene, who knew the process for making the liquor and kept the recipe in a little safe with a combination lock. That recipe was given to our forefathers as a gift by the natives who, two years after giving it, with no provocation and having gotten along peacefully with the settlers, 
vanished without a trace, leaving behind an empty village on an island out in the swamp, or so the story goes. The celebration that involved this drink took place at the Blind Ghost on the last Saturday night in September. It was usually for adults only, and so the first chance I ever got to witness it was the year I was made an apprentice to Old Man Witzer. The only two younger people at the event that year were me and Lester II. Bildab's boy had been attending since he was ten, and some speculated that having witnessed the thing and been around the berries so long was what had turned him simple. But I knew young Lester in school before that, and he was no ball of fire then either. Of the adults that participated, only eight actually partook of the night whiskey. Reed and Samantha Bosine took turns each year, one joining in the drinking while the other watched the bar, and then there were seven others picked by lottery who got to taste the sweetest thing on earth. Sheriff Jolie did the honors, picking the names of the winners from a hat at the event, and was barred from participating by a town ordinance that went way back. Those who didn't drink the night whiskey drank conventional alcohol, and there were local musicians there and dancing. From the snatches of conversation about the celebrations that adults would let slip out, I'd had an idea it was a raucous time. This native drink, black as a crow wing and slow to pour as cough syrup, had some strange properties. A year's batch was enough to fill only half an old quart gin bottle that Samantha Bosine had tricked out with a handmade label showing a deer skull with berries for eyes, and so it was portioned out sparingly. Each participant got no more than about three-quarters of a shot glass of it, but that was enough. Even with just these few sips, it was wildly intoxicating, so that the drinkers became immediately drunk, their inebriation growing as the night went on, although they'd finished off their allotted pittance within the first hour of the celebration. Blind drunk was the phrase used to describe how the drinkers of it would end the night. Then came the weird part, for usually around 2 a.m. all eight of them, all at once, got to their feet, stumbled out the door, lurched down the front steps of the bar, and meandered off into the dark, groping and weaving like the namesakes of the establishment they had just left. It was a peculiar phenomenon of the drink that it made those who imbibed it search for a resting place in the lower branches of a tree. Even though they were a pie-eyed drunk, somehow, and no one knew why, they'd managed to shimmy up a trunk and settle themselves down across a few choice branches. It was a law that if you tried to stop them or disturb them, it would be cause for arrest. So when the drinkers of the night whiskey left the bar, no one followed. The next day, they'd be found fast asleep in mid-air, only a few precarious branches between them and gravity. That's where old man Witzer and I came in. At first light, we were to make our rounds in his truck with the poles bungeed on top, partaking of what was known as the drunk harvest. Dangerous? You bet, but there was a reason for it. I told you about the weird part, but even though this next part gives a justification of sorts, it's even weirder. When the natives gave the berry and the recipe for the night whiskey to our forefathers, they considered it a gift of a most divine nature, because after the dark drink was ingested and the drinker had climbed aloft, sleep would invariably bring him or her to some realm between that of dream and the sweet hereafter. In this limbo, they'd come face to face with their relatives and loved ones who'd passed on. That's right. It never failed. As best as I can remember him having told it, Here's my own father's recollection of the experience from the year he won the lottery. I found myself out in the swamp at night with no memory of how I'd gotten there or what reason I had for being there. I tried to find a marker, a fallen tree or a certain turn in the path to find my way back to town. The moon was bright, and as I stepped into a clearing, I saw a single figure standing there stark naked. I drew closer and said hello, even though I wanted to run. 
I saw it was an old fellow, and when he heard me approaching, he looked up, and right there I knew it was my Uncle Fick. What are you doing out here without your clothes, I said to him as I approached. Don't you remember Joe, he said, smiling. I'm passed on. And then it struck me and made my hair stand on end. But Uncle Fick, who died at the age of 98 when I was only 14, told me not to be afraid. He told me a good many things, explained a good many things, told me not to fear death. I asked him about my ma and pa, and he said they were together as always and having a good time. I bid him to say hello to them for me, and he said he would. Then he turned and started to walk away, but stepped on a twig, and that sound brought me awake, and I was lying in the back of Witzer's pickup, staring into the jowly, pitted face of Bo Elliot. My father was no liar, and it proved to my mother and me that he was telling the truth. He told us that Uncle Fick had told him where to find a tie pin he'd been given as a commemoration of his 25th year at the feed store, but had subsequently lost. He then walked right over to a teapot shaped like an orange that my mother kept on a shelf in our living room, opened it, reached in, and pulled out the pin. The only question my father was left with about the whole strange episode was, out of all my dead relations, why Uncle Fick? Stories like the one my father told my mother and me abound. Early on, back in the 1700s, they were written down by those who could write. Those rotting manuscripts were kept for a long time in the Gatchfield Library, an old shoe repair store with bookshelves in a glass case. Sometimes the dead who showed up in the night whiskey dreams offered premonitions. Sometimes they told who a thief was when something had gone missing. And supposedly it was the way Jolie had solved the Latchy murder on a tip given to Mrs. Wyndham by her great-aunt, dead ten years. Knowing that our ancestors were keeping an eye on things and didn't mind singing out about the untoward once a year usually convinced the citizens of Gatchfield to walk the straight and narrow. We kept it to ourselves, though, and never breathed a word of it to outsiders as if their rightful skepticism would ruin the power of the ceremony. As for those who'd left town, it was never a worry what they'd tell anyone because... Seriously, who'd have believed them? On a Wednesday evening, the second week of September, while sitting in the pickup truck drinking a beer, old man Witzer said, I think you got it, boy. No more practice now. Too much, and we'll overdo it. I simply nodded, but in the following weeks leading up to the end of the month celebration, I was a wreck, envisioning the body of one of my friends or neighbors sprawled broken on the ground next to the bed of the truck. At night, I'd have a recurring dream of prodding a body out of an oak, seeing it fall in slow motion, and then all would go black and I'd just hear this dull crack, what I assumed to be the drunk's head slamming the side of the pickup bed. I'd wake and sit up straight, shivering. Each time this happened, I tried to remember to see who it was in my dream, because it always seemed to be the same person. Two nights before the celebration, I saw a tattoo of a coiled cobra on the fellow's bicep as he fell, and I knew it was Henry Grass. I thought of telling Witzer, but I didn't want to seem a scared kid. The night of the celebration came, and after sundown, my mother and father and I left the house and strolled down the street to the blind ghost. People were already starting to arrive, and from inside I could hear the band tuning up fiddles and banjos. Samantha Bocine had made the place up for the event. Black crepe paper draped here and there and wrapped around the support beams. Hanging from the ceiling on various lengths of fishing line were the skulls of all manner of local animals. Coyote, deer, beaver, squirrel, and a giant black bear skull suspended over the center table where the lottery winners were to sit and take their drink. I was standing on the threshold, taking all this in, feeling the same kind of enchantment as when I was a kid, and Mrs. Musfin would do up the three classrooms of the schoolhouse for Christmas, when my father leaned over to me and whispered, You're on your own tonight, Ernest. You want to drink? Drink. You want to dance? Dance. I looked at him, and he smiled, nodded, and winked. 
I then looked to my mother, and she merely shrugged as if to say, That's the nature of the beast. Old man Witzer was there at the bar, and he called me over and handed me a cold beer. Two other of the town's oldest men were with him, his chess-playing buddies, and he put his arm around my shoulders and introduced them to me. This is a good boy, he said, patting my back. He's doing Bo Elliott proud out there under the trees. The two friends of his nodded and smiled at me, the most notice I'd gotten from either of them my entire life. And then the band launched into a reel, and everyone turned to watch them play. Two choruses went by, and I saw my mother and father and some of the other couples move out onto the small dance floor. I had another beer and looked around. About four songs later, Sheriff Jolie appeared in the doorway to the bar, and the music stopped mid-tune. Okay, he said, hitching his pants up over his gut and removing his black wide brim hat. Time to get the lottery started. He moved to the center of the bar where the night whiskey drinker's table was set up and took a seat. Everybody drop your lottery tickets into the hat and make it snappy. I'd guessed that this year it was Samantha Bocine who was going to drink her own concoction since Reed stayed behind the bar and she moved over and took a seat across from Jolie. After the last of the tickets had been deposited into the hat, the sheriff pushed it away from him into the middle of the table. He then called for a whiskey neat, and Reed was there with it in a flash. In one swift gulp, he drained the glass, banged it onto the tabletop, and said, I'm ready. My girlfriend Darlene's stepmom came up from behind him with a black scarf and tied it around his eyes for a blindfold. Reaching into the hat, he ran his fingers through the lottery tickets, mixing them around, and then started drawing them out one by one and stacking them in a neat pile in front of him on the table. When he had the seven, he stopped and pulled off the blindfold. He then read the names in a loud voice, and everyone kept quiet till he was finished. Becca Staney, Stan Joss, Pete Hessian, Berta Hull, Moses T. Remark, Ronald White, and Henry Grass. The room exploded with applause and screams. The winners smiled, dazed by having won, as their friends and family gathered round them and slapped them on the back, hugged them, shoved drinks into their hands. I was overwhelmed by the moment caught up in it and grinning until I looked over at Witzer and saw him jotting the names down in a little notebook he'd refer to tomorrow when we made our rounds. Only then did it come to me that one of the names was none other than Henry Grass, and I felt my stomach tighten into a knot. Each of the winners eventually sat down at the center table. Jolie got up and gave his seat to Reed Bocine, who brought with him from behind the bar the bottle of night whiskey and a tray of eight shot glasses. Like the true barman he was, he poured all eight without lifting the bottle once, all to the exact same level. One by one, they were handed around the table. When each of the winners had one before him or her, the barkeep smiled and said, Drink up. Some went for it like it was a draft from the fountain of youth. Some snuck up on it with trembling hand. Berta Hull, a middle-aged mother of five with horse teeth and short red hair, took a sip and declared, Oh my, it's so lovely. Ronald White, the brother of one of the men I worked with at the gas station, took his up and dashed it off in one shot. He wiped his mouth on his sleeve and laughed like a maniac, drunk already. Reed went back to the bar. The band started up again and the celebration came to life like a wild animal in too small a cage. I wandered around the bar, nodding to the folks I knew, half taken by my new celebrity as a participant in the drunk harvest, and half preoccupied watching Henry Grass. He was a young guy, only twenty-five, with a crew cut and a square jaw, dressed in the camouflage sleeveless T-shirt he wore in my recurring dream. With the way he stared at the shot glass in front of him through his little circular glasses, you'd have thought he was staring into the eyes of a king cobra. He had a reputation as a gentle, studious soul, although he was most likely the strongest man in town, the rare instance of an outsider who made a place for himself in Gatchfield.
The books he read were all about UFOs and the Bermuda Triangle, chariots of the gods, stuff my father proclaimed to be Dodd in the wool hooey. He worked with the horses over at the Haber family farm and lived in a trailer out by the old Civil War shot tower, across the meadow and through the woods. I stopped for a moment to talk to Lester II, who mumbled to me around the hard-boiled eggs he was shoving into his mouth one after another, and when I looked back to Henry, he'd finished off the shot glass and left the table. I overheard snatches of conversation, and much of it was commentary on why it was the lucky thing that so-and-so had won the lottery this year. Someone mentioned the fact that poor Pete Hessian's beautiful young wife, Lonette, had passed away from leukemia just at the end of the spring, and another mentioned that Moses had always wanted a shot at the night whiskey, but had never gotten the chance, and how he'd soon been too old to participate, as his arthritis had recently given him the devil of a time. Everybody was pulling for Berta Hull, who was raising those five children on her own, and Becca was a favorite because she was the town midwife. The same such stuff was said about Ron White and Stan Joss. In addition to the well wishes for the lottery winners, I stood for a long time next to a table where Sheriff Jolie, my father and mother, and Dr. Cavench sat and listened to the doctor, a spry little man with a gray goatee who was by then fairly well along in his cups, as were his listeners, myself included, spout his theory as to why the drinkers took to the trees. He explained it amidst a barrage of hiccups as a product of evolution. His theory was that the deathberry plant had at one time grown everywhere on earth, and that early man partook of some form of the night whiskey at the dawn of time. Because the world was teeming with night predators then, because early man was just recently descended from the treetops, those who became drunk automatically knew, as a means of self-preservation, to climb up into the trees and sleep, so as not to become a repast for a saber-toothed tiger or some other owner's creature. Dr. Gavench, citing Carl Jung, believed that the imperative to get off the ground after drinking the night whiskey had remained in the collective unconscious and was passed down through the ages. Everybody in the world probably still has the unconscious command that would kick in if they were to drink the dark stuff. But since the berry doesn't grow anywhere but here now, we're the only ones that see this effect. The doctor nodded, hiccuped twice, and then got up to fetch a glass of water. When he left the table, Jolie looked over at my mother, and she and he and my father broke up laughing. I'm glad he's better at pushing pills and concocting theories, said the sheriff, drying his eyes with his thumbs. At about midnight, I was reaching for yet another beer, which Reed had placed on the bar, when my grasp was interrupted by a vice-like grip on my wrist. I looked up and saw that it was Witzer. He said nothing to me, but simply shook his head, and I knew he was telling me to lay off so as to be fresh for the harvest in the morning. I nodded. He smiled, patted my shoulder, and turned away. Somewhere around 2 a.m., the lottery winners, so incredibly drunk that even in my intoxicated state it seemed impossible they could still walk, stopped dancing, drinking, whatever, and headed for the door. The music abruptly ceased. It suddenly became so silent we could hear the wind blowing out on the street. The sounds of them stumbling across the wooden porch of the bar, and then the steps creaking, the screen door banging shut, filled me with a sense of awe and visions of them groping through the night. I tried to picture Berta Hull climbing a tree, but just couldn't get there, and the doctor's theory seemed to make some sense to me. I left before my parents did. Witzer drove me home, and before I got out of the cab, he handed me a small bottle. Take three good chugs, he said. What is it, I asked. An herb mix, he said. It'll clear your head and have you ready for the morning. I took the first sip of it, and the taste was as bitter as could be. Good God, I said, grimacing. Witzer wheezed. Do more, he said. I did as I was told, got out of the truck, and bid him good night. I didn't remember undressing or getting into bed, and luckily I was too drunk to dream. It seemed as if I'd only closed my eyes when my father's voice woke me, saying, 
The old man's out in the truck waiting on you. I leaped out of bed and dressed, and when I finally knew what was going on, I was surprised I felt as well and refreshed as I did. Do good, Ernest, said my father from the kitchen. Wait, my mother called. A moment later, she came out of the bedroom, wrapping a robe around her. She gave me a hug and a kiss and then said, Hurry. It was brisk outside, and the early morning light gave proof that the day would be a clear one. The truck sat at the curb, the prod strapped to the top. Witzer sat in the cab, drinking a cup of coffee from the delicatessen. When I got in beside him, he handed me a cup and an egg sandwich on a hard roll wrapped in white paper. We're off, he said. I cleared the sleep out of my eyes as he pulled away from the curb. Our journey took us down the main street of town and then through the alley next to the sheriff's office. This gave way to another small tree-lined street we turned right on. As we headed away from the center of town, we passed Darlene's house, and I wondered what she'd done the previous night while I'd been at the celebration. I had a memory of the last time we were together. She was sitting naked against the wall of the abandoned barn by the edge of the swamp. Her blonde hair and face were aglow, illuminated by a beam of light that shone through a hole in the roof. She had the longest legs, and her skin was pale and smooth. Taking a drag from her cigarette, she'd said, Ernest, we gotta get out of this town. She'd laid out for me her plan of escape, her desire to go to some city where civilization was in full swing. I just nodded, reluctant to be too enthusiastic. She was adventurous, and I was a homebody, but I did care deeply for her. She tossed her cigarette, put out her arms, and opened her legs, and then Witzer said, Keep your eyes peeled now, boy, and her image melted away. We were slowly moving along a dirt road, both of us looking up at the lower branches of the trees. The old man saw the first one. I didn't see her till he applied the brakes. He took a little notebook and a stub of pencil out of his shirt pocket. Samantha Bocine, he whispered, and put a check next to her name. We got out of the cab and I helped him unlatch the prods and lay them on the ground beside the truck. She was resting across three branches in a magnolia tree, not too far from the ground. One arm and her long gray hair hung down, and she was turned so I could see her sleeping face. Get the ten, said Witzer, as he walked over to stand directly behind her. I did as I was told and then joined him. What do you say, he asked. Looks like this one's going to be a peach. Well, I'm thinking if I get it on her left eye and push her forward fast enough, she'll flip as she falls and land perfectly. Witzer said nothing but left me standing there and went and got in the truck. He started it up and drove it around to park so that the bed was precisely where we hoped she would land. He put it in park and left it running, and then got out and came and stood beside me. Take a few deep breaths, he said, and then let her fly. I thought I'd be more nervous, but the training the old man had given me took hold, and I knew exactly what to do. I aimed the prod and rested it gently on the top of her leg. Just as he'd told me, a real body was going to offer a little more resistance than one of the dummies, and I was ready for that. I took three big breaths and then shoved. She rolled slightly and then tumbled forward, ass overhead, landing with a thump on the mattresses, facing the morning sky. Witzer wheezed to beat the band and said, That's a solid ten. I was ecstatic. The old man broke a twig next to Samantha's left ear and instantly her eyelids fluttered. Eventually, she opened her eyes and smiled. How was your visit? asked Witzer. I'll never get tired of that, she said. It was wonderful. We chatted with her for a few minutes, filling her in on how the party had gone at the blind ghost after she'd left. She didn't divulge to us what past relative she'd met with, and we didn't ask. As my mentor had told me when I started, there's a kind of etiquette to this. When in doubt, silence is your best friend. Samantha started walking back toward the center of town, and we loaded the prods onto the truck again. In no time, we were on our way, searching for the next sleeper. Luck was with us, for we found four in a row fairly close by each other, Stan Joss, Moses T. Remark, Berta Hull, and Becca Staney. 
All of them had chosen easy-to-get-to perches in the lower branches of ancient oaks, and we dropped them, one, two, three, four, easy as could be. I never had to reach for anything longer than the ten, and the old man proved a genius at placing the truck just so. When each came around at the insistence of the snapping twig, they were cordial and seemed pleased with their experience. Moses even gave us a ten-dollar tip for dropping him into the truck. Becca told us that she'd spoken to her mother, whom she'd missed terribly since the woman's death two years earlier. Even though they'd been blind drunk the night before, amazingly none of them appeared to be hung over, and each walked away with a perceptible spring in his or her step, even Moses, though he was still slightly bent at the waist by the arthritis. Whistler said, "'Knock on wood, of course, but this is the easiest year I can remember.' The year your daddy won, we had to ride around for four solid hours before we found him out by the swamp. We found Ron White only a short piece up the road from where we'd found the cluster of four, and he was an easy job. I didn't get him to land on his back. He fell face first, not a desirable drop, but he came to none the worse for wear. After Ron, we had to ride for quite a while, heading out toward the edge of the swamp. I knew the only two left were Pete Hessian and Henry Grass, and the thought of Henry started to get me nervous again. I was reluctant to show my fear, not wanting the old man to lose faith in me, but as we drove slowly along, I finally told Witzer about my recurring dream. When I was done recounting what I thought was a premonition, Witzer sat in silence for a few moments and then said, I'm glad you told me. I'll bet it's really nothing, I said. Henry's a big fellow, he said. Why should you have all the fun? I'll drop him. And with this, the matter was settled. I realized I should have told him weeks ago when I first started having the dreams. "'Easy, boy,' said Witzer with a wheeze and waved his hand as if wiping away my cares. "'You've got years of this to go. You can't manage everything on the first harvest.' We searched everywhere for Pete and Henry, all along the road to the swamp, on the trails that ran through the woods, out along the meadow by the shot tower and Henry's own trailer. With the dilapidated wooden structure of the tower still in sight, we finally found Henry. "'Dar she blows,' said Witzer, and he stopped the truck. "'Where?' I said, getting out of the truck, and the old man pointed straight up. Over our heads, in a tall pine, Henry lay face down, his arms and legs spread so that they kept him up while the rest of his body was suspended over nothing. His head hung down, as if in shame or utter defeat. He looked in a way like he was crucified, and I didn't like the look of that at all. "'Give me the twenty, said Witzer, and then pulled the truck up. I undid the prods from the roof, laid the other two on the ground by the side of the path, and ran the twenty over to the old man." By the time I went back to the truck, got it going, and turned it toward the drop spot, Witzer had the long pole in two hands and was sizing up the situation. As I pulled closer, he let the pole down and then waved me forward while eyeing back and forth, Henry, and then the bed. He directed me to cut the wheel this way and that, reverse two feet, and then he gave me the thumbs up. I turned off the truck and got out. Okay, he said, this is going to be a tricky one. He lifted the prod up and up and rested the soft end against Henry's chest. You're going to have to help me here. We're going to push straight up on his chest so that his arms flop down and clear the branches. And then, as we let him down, we're going to slide the pole, catch him at the belt buckle, and give him a good nudge there to flip him as he falls. I looked up at where Henry was, and then I just stared at Witzer. Wake up, boy, he shouted. I came to and grabbed the prod where his hands weren't. On three, he said. He counted off, and then we pushed. Henry was heavy as ten sacks of rocks. We got him, cried Witzer. Now slide it. I did, and only then did I look up. Push, the old man said. We gave it one more shove, and Henry went into a swan dive, flipping like an Olympic athlete off the high board. When I saw him in mid-fall, my knees went weak and the air left me. 
He landed on his back with a loud thud directly in the middle of the mattresses, dust from the old cushions rolling up against him. We woke Henry easily enough, sent him on his way to the town, and were back in the truck. The first time that morning, I breathed a sigh of relief. Easiest harvest I've ever been part of, said Witzer. We headed farther down the path toward the swamp, scanning the branches for Pete Hessian. Sure enough, in the same right manner with which everything else had fallen into place, we found him curled up on his side in the branches of an enormous maple tree. With the first cursory glance at him, the old man determined that Pete would require no more than a ten. After we got the prods off the truck and positioned it under our last drop, Witzer insisted that I take him down. One more to keep your skill up through the rest of the year, he said. It was a simple job. Pete had found a nice perch with three thick branches beneath him. As I said, he was curled up on his side, and I couldn't see him all too well, so I just nudged his upper back and he rolled over like a small boulder. The drop was precise, and he hit the center of the mattresses, but the instant he was in the bed of the pickup, I knew something was wrong. He'd fallen too quickly for me to register it sooner, but as he lay there, I now noticed there was someone else with him. Witzer literally jumped to the side of the truck bed and stared in. What in fuck's name, said the old man. Is that a kid he's got with him? I saw the other body there, naked, in Pete's arms. There was long... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Blonde hair, that much was sure. It could have been a kid, but I thought I saw in the jumble a full female-sized breast. Witzer reached into the truck bed, grabbed Pete by the shoulder, and rolled him away from the other form. Then the two of us stood there in stunned silence. The thing that lay there wasn't a woman or a child, but both and neither. The body was twisted and deformed, the size of an eight-year-old, with all the characteristics of maturity, if you know what I mean. And that face, lumpen and distorted, brow bulging and from the left temple to the chin erupted in a range of discolored ridges. Is that Lonette? I whispered, afraid the thing would awaken. She's dead, ain't she? said Witzer in as low a voice, and his Adam's apple bobbed. We both knew she was, but there she or some twisted copy of her lay. The old man took a handkerchief from his back pocket and brought it up to his mouth. 
He closed his eyes and leaned against the side of the truck. A bird flew by low overhead. The sun shone and the leaves fell in the woods on both sides of the path. Needless to say, when we moved again, we weren't breaking any twigs. Witzer told me to leave the prods and get in the truck. He started it up and we drove slowly, like about fifteen miles an hour, into the center of town. We drove in complete silence. The place was quiet as a ghost town, no doubt everyone sleeping off the celebration, but we saw that Sheriff Jolie's cruiser was in front of the bunker-like concrete building that was the police station. The old man parked and went in. As he and the sheriff appeared at the door, I got out of the truck and joined them. "'What are you talking about?' Jolie said as they passed me and headed for the truck bed. I followed behind them. "'Shh,' said Whistler, when they were finally looking down at the sleeping couple, Pete, and whatever that Lonette thing was, he added, "'That's what I'm fucking talking about.' He pointed his crooked old finger and his hand was obviously trembling. Jolie's jaw dropped open after the second or two it took to sink in. "'I never,' said the sheriff, and that's all they said for a long time. Whitzer whispered, "'Pete brought her back with him.' "'What kind of crazy shit is this?' asked Jolie, and he turned quickly and looked at me as if I had an answer. Then he looked back at Witzer. "'What the hell happened? Did he dig her up?' "'She's alive,' said the old man. "'You can see her breathing, but she's got bunched up or something in the transfer from there to here.' "'Bunched up,' said Jolie. "'There to here? What in Christ's name?' He shook his head and removed his shades. Then he turned to me again and said, "'Boy, go get Doc Quench.' In calling the doctor, I didn't know what to tell him, so I just said there was an emergency over at the sheriff's office and that he was needed. I didn't stick around and wait for him because I had to keep moving. To stop would mean I'd have to think too deeply about the return of Lonette Hessian. By the time I got back to the truck, Henry Grass had also joined Jolie and Witzer, having walked into town to get something to eat after his dream ordeal of the night before. As I drew close to them, I heard Henry saying, "'She's come from another dimension.' I've read about things like this, and from what I experienced last night talking to my dead brother, I can tell you that place seems real enough for this to happen. Jolie looked away from Henry at me as I approached, and then his gaze shifted over my head and he must have caught sight of the doctor. Good job, said the sheriff, and put his hand on my shoulder as I leaned forward to catch my breath. Hey, doc, he said as Kavench drew close. You got a theory about this? The doctor stepped up to the truck bed and, clearing the sleep from his eyes, looked down at where the sheriff was pointing. Dr. Kavench had seen it all in his years in Gatchfield. Birth, death, blood, body rot. But the instant he laid his eyes on the new Lonette, the color drained out of him, and he grimaced like he'd just taken a big swig of Witzer's herb mix. The effect on him was dramatic, and Henry stepped up next to him and held him up with one big tattooed arm across his back. Kavench brushed Henry off and turned away from the truck. I thought for a second he was going to puke. We waited for his diagnosis. Finally, he turned back and said... Where did it come from? It fell out of the tree with Pete this morning, said Witzer. I signed the death certificate for that girl five months ago, said the doctor. She's come from another dimension, said Henry, launching into one of his Bermuda Triangle explanations, but Joe Lee held up a hand to silence him. Nobody spoke then, and the sheriff started pacing back and forth, looking into the sky and then at the ground. It was obvious that he was having some kind of silent argument with himself, because every few seconds he'd either nod or shake his head. Finally, he put his open palms to his face for a moment, rubbed his forehead, and cleared his eyes. Then he turned to us. Look, here's what we're going to do. I decided. We're going to get Pete out of that truck without waking him and put him on the cot in the station. Will he stay asleep if we move him, he asked Witzer. The old man nodded. As long as you don't shout his name or break a twig near his ear, he should keep sleeping till we wake him. Okay, continued Julie. 
We get Pete out of the truck, and then we drive that thing out into the woods. We shoot it, and we bury it. Everybody looked around at everybody else. The doctor said, I don't know if I can be a part of that. You're gonna be a part of that, said Jolie, or right this second you're taking full responsibility for its care. And I mean full responsibility. It's alive, though, said Kvench. But it's a mistake, said the sheriff, either of nature or God or whatever. Doc, I agree with Jolie, said Whitzer. I've never seen anything that felt so wrong to me than what I'm looking at in the back of that truck. You want to nurse that thing till it dies on its own, Jolie said to the doctor. Think of what it'll do to Pete to have to deal with that. Kvench looked down and shook his head. Eventually he whispered, You're right. Boy, Jolie said to me. My mouth was dry and my head was swimming a little. I nodded. Good, said the sheriff. Henry added that he was in. It was decided that we all participate and share in the act of disposing of it. Henry and the sheriff gently lifted Pete out of the truck and took him into the station house. When they appeared back outside, Jolie told Witzer and me to drive out to the woods in the truck and that he and Henry and Kvench would follow in his cruiser. For the first few minutes of the drive out, Witzer said nothing. We passed Pete Hessian's small yellow house, and upon seeing it, I immediately started thinking about Lonette and how beautiful she'd been. She and Pete had only been in their early thirties, a very handsome couple. He was thin and gangly and had been a star basketball player for Gashfield, but never tall enough to turn his skill into a college scholarship. They'd been high school sweethearts. He finally found work as a municipal handyman and had that good-natured youth-going-to-seed personality of the washed-up, once-lauded athlete. Lonette had worked at the cash register at the local grocery. I remember her passing by our front porch on the way to work the evening shift one afternoon, and I overheard her talking to my mother about how she and Pete had decided to try to start a family. I'm sure I wasn't supposed to be privy to this conversation, but whenever she passed in front of our house, I tried to make it a point of being near a window. I heard every word through the screen. The very next week, though, I learned that she had some kind of disease. That was three years ago. She slowly grew more haggard through the following seasons. Pete tried to take care of her on his own, but I don't think it had gone all too well. At her funeral, Henry had to hold him back from climbing into the grave after her. Is this murder, I asked Witzer after he'd turned onto the dirt path and headed out toward the woods. He looked over at me and said nothing for a second. I don't know, Ernest, he said. Can you murder someone who's already dead? Can you murder a dream? What would you have us do? He didn't ask the last question angrily, but as if he was really looking for another plan than Jolie's. I shook my head. I'll never see things the same again, he said. I keep thinking I'm going to wake up any minute now. We drove on for another half mile, and then he pulled the truck off the path and under a cluster of oak. As we got out of the cab, the sheriff parked next to us. Henry, the doctor, and Joe Lee got out of the cruiser, and all five of us gathered at the back of the pickup. It fell to Witzer and me to get her out of the truck and lay her on the ground some feet away. Careful, whispered the old man as he leaned over the wall of the bed and slipped his arms under her. I took the legs, and when I touched her skin, a shiver went through me. Her body was heavier than I thought, and her sex was staring me right in the face, covered with short hair thick as twine. She was breathing lightly, obviously sleeping, and her pupils moved rapidly beneath her closed lids like she was dreaming. She had a powerful aroma, flowers and candy, sweet to the point of sickening. We got her on the ground without waking her, and the instant I let go of her legs, I stepped outside the circle of men. Stand back, said Julie. The others moved away. He pulled his gun out of its holster with his left hand and made the sign of the cross with his right. Leaning down, he put the gun near her left temple and then cocked the hammer back. The hammer clicked into place with the sound of a breaking twig, and right then her eyes shot open. Four grown men jumped backward in unison. 
"'Good Lord,' said Witzer. "'Do it,' said Kvench. "'I looked to Jolie, and he was staring down at her as if in a trance. "'Her eyes had no color. "'They were wide and shifting back and forth. "'She started taking deep, raspy breaths and then sat straight up. "'A low, mewing noise came from her chest, "'the sound of a cat or a scared child. "'Then she started talking backward talk, "'some foreign language never heard on earth before, "'babbling frantically and drooling. "'Jolie fired. "'The bullet caught her in the side of the head "'and threw her onto her right shoulder.' The side of her face, including her ear, blew off, and this black stuff, not blood, splattered all over, flecks of it staining Jolie's pants and shirt and face. The side of her head was smoking. She lay there, writhing in what looked like a pool of oil, and he shot her again and again, emptying the gun into her. The side of it brought me to my knees, and I puked. When I looked up, she'd stopped moving. Tears were streaming down Winter's face. Gavench was shaking. Henry looked as if he'd been turned to stone. Jolie's finger kept pulling the trigger, but there were no rounds left. After Henry tamped down the last shovel full of dirt on her grave, Jolie made us swear never to say a word to anyone about what had happened. I pledged that oath, as did the others. Whistler took me home, no doubt having silently decided I shouldn't be there when they woke Pete. When I got to the house, I went straight to bed and slept for an entire day, only getting up in time to get to the gas station for work the next morning. The only dream I had was an infuriating and frustrating one of Lester II eating hard-boiled eggs and explaining it all to me but in backward talk and gibberish so I couldn't make out any of it. Carrying the memory of that drunk harvest miracle around with me was like constantly having a big black bubble of night afloat in the middle of my waking thoughts. As autumn came on and passed and then winter bore down on Gatchfield, the insidious strength of it never diminished. It made me quiet and moody and my relationship with Darlene suffered. I kept my distance from the other four conspirators. It went so far as we tried not to even recognize each other's presence when we passed on the street. Only Witzer still waved at me from his pickup when he'd drive by, and if I was the attendant when he came into the station for gas, he'd say, How are you, boy? I'd nod, and that would be it. Around Christmas time, I'd heard from my father that Pete Hessian had lost his mind and was unable to go to work, would break down crying at a moment's notice, couldn't sleep, and was being treated by Kavench with all manner of pills. Things didn't get any better come spring. Pete shot the side of his head off with a pistol. Mrs. Marfish, who'd gone to bring him a pie she'd baked to cheer him up, discovered him lying dead in a pool of blood on the back porch of the little yellow house. Then Sheriff Jolie took ill and was so bad off with whatever he had he couldn't get out of bed. He deputized Reed Bocine, the barkeep, and the most sensible man in town to look after Gashfield in his absence. Reed did a good job as sheriff, and Samantha double-timed it at the Blind Ghost, both solid citizens. In the early days of May, I burned my hand badly at work on a hot car engine, and my boss drove me over to Kavench's office to get it looked after. While I was in his treatment room with him, and he was wrapping my hand in gauze, he leaned close to me and whispered, I think I know what happened. I didn't even make a face, but stared ahead at the eye chart on the wall, not really wanting to hear anything about the incident. Gatchfield so isolated that change couldn't get in from the outside, so nature sent it from within, he said. Mutation from the dream. I looked at him. He was nodding, but I saw that his goatee had gone squirrely. There was this overeager gleam in his eyes, and his breath smelled like medicine. I knew right then he'd been more than sampling his own pills. I couldn't get out of there fast enough. June came, and it was a week away from the day that Witzer and I were to begin practicing for the drunk harvest again. I dreaded the thought of it to the point where I was having a hard time eating or sleeping. After work one evening, as I was walking home, the old man pulled up next to me in his pickup truck. He stopped and opened the window. I was going to keep walking, but he said, Boy, get in. Take a ride with me. I made the mistake of looking over at him. 
It's important, he said. I got in the cab and we drove slowly off down the street. I blurted out that I didn't think I'd be able to manage the harvest, and how screwed up the thought of it was making me, but he held his hand up and said, Shh, shh, I know. I quieted down and waited for him to talk. A few seconds passed, and then he said, I've been to see Joe Lee. You haven't seen him, have you? I shook my head. He's a goner for sure. He's got some kind of belly rot, and I swear to you, he's got a deathberry bush growing out of his insides, while he's still alive, no less. Doc Avenge just keeps feeding him pills, but he'd be better off taking a hedge clipper to him. Are you serious, I said? Boy, I'm dead serious. Before I could respond, he said, Now look, when the time for the celebration comes around, we're all going to have to participate in it as if nothing had happened. We made our oath to the sheriff. That's bad enough. But what happens when somebody's dead relative tells them in a night whiskey dream what we did? What happened with Lonette? I was trembling and couldn't bring myself to speak. Tomorrow night. Are you listening to me? Tomorrow night, I'm leaving my truck unlocked with the keys and the ignition. You come to my place and take it and get the fuck out of Gatchfield. I hadn't noticed, but we were now parked in front of my house. He leaned across me and opened my door. Get as far away as you can, boy, he said. The next day, I called in sick to work, withdrew all my savings from the bank, and talked to Darlene. That night, good to his word, the keys were in the old pickup. I noticed there was a new used truck parked next to the old one on his lot to cover when the one we took went missing. I left my parents a letter about how Darlene and I had decided to elope and that they weren't to worry. I'd call them. We fled to the biggest, brightest city we could find in the rush and maddening business of the place. The distance from home, our combined struggle to survive at first and then make our way, was a curative better than any pill the doctor could have prescribed. Every day there was a change and progress and crazy news on the television, and these things served to shrink the black bubble in my thoughts. Still to this day, though... So many years later, there's always an evening near the end of September when I sit down to a night whiskey, so to speak, and Gatchfield comes back to me in my dreams like some lost relative I'm both terrified to behold and want nothing more than to put my arms around and never let go. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Mr. Jeffrey Fords. Jeff, sir, thank you very much for this. And Raj, brilliant narration. Thank you, sir. So now it is that final little bit there. It's the science news, Mr. J.J. Campanella. Greetings and follicular regenerations, my fine listeners, and welcome to this May 2013 science news update. I'm your host for this post-May Day and post-Cinco de Mayo science podcast, Jim Campanella. First story of the night was pointed out to me in the popular press by my lovely wife. Eyeing my salt and pepper hair, she informed me the scientists had found the cause and a cure for graying hair. I was less than sanguine, to say the least, especially after reading the silly Yahoo article that she forwarded to me. As with most articles of its ilk, it lacked detail and did not even tell who the names of the researchers were who made the discoveries. I am not vain, and I would never color my hair to make my premature locks look any darker— but if there was some way to convince my hair to go back to being dark by some method that bypassed such unnatural means, I would be interested. So I dug through the literature until I found the original article that had been referenced. I was not surprised that the news agencies had not exactly been honest in their reporting. The title of the article had nothing at all to do with hair. To say that the story was poorly reported in the media is putting it mildly with all the headlines speculating that the findings could lead to a cure for gray hair. This was a textbook example of PR officers sexying up a dry but 
worthy piece of research to gain maximum media coverage. The article by Dr. Karen Schallreuter of Arnst University was published last month in the FASEP Journal. It is entitled, Basic Evidence for Epidermal Hydrogen Peroxide Peroxynitrate-Mediated Oxidation Nitration in Segmental Vitiligo is supported by repigmentation of the skin and eyelashes after reduction of epidermal hydrogen peroxide with topical narrow-band UVB-activated pseudocatalase. Yes, that is a mouthful. What does it mean? Well, it means that Schallreuter was not looking for gray hair cures, but she may have found one anyway. Schallreuter and her group have been studying the disease vitiligo, Vitiligo is a genetic disease in which patches of skin and hair of the affected become bleached of pigment. They look piebald in terms of skin and hair color, as if they'd been splashed with bleach and it literally bleached patches of their skin and hair. Schallreuter's work has turned up evidence that vitiligo is caused by an overproduction and or lack of degradation of hydrogen peroxide in the skin and hair follicles. Hydrogen peroxide is able to bleach melanin, the primary skin pigment, so the skin cells look dead white, like somebody with albinism, or a white walker if you were a fan of the Game of Thrones. And now for the cool part. Dr. Schallreuter has found that after six to nine months of treatment with a special enzyme, more on that in a second, she can get the skin and hair of those affected people to repigment almost back to normal shades. Now a couple of points. First, we all have enzymes that break down oxygen radicals. Those are highly ionized oxygens that can damage DNA and proteins, and hydrogen peroxide falls into that category. The chief of those enzymes are catalase and peroxidase that break down such molecules, and they are primarily inside cells and do their protective work there. It turns out that Schallreuter treated the skin and hair of vitiligo patients with a cream with an altered form of the enzyme catalase, called pseudocatalase, that is sensitive to UVB wavelengths. She was also able to get their skin and hair to turn back to normal after long enough treatments to reduce the levels of hydrogen peroxide in the skin and hair follicles. I have seen the photos of before and after and they are frankly amazing. It was found that the first sign of repigmentation occurred as early as two to four months after the initiation of the therapy, and complete repigmentation of the face and hands of patients was seen in about 90% of the group. Repigmentation with pseudocatalase cream can be achieved in all skin colors, she says, and is independent of the percentage of depigmented skin and the duration the patient has suffered the disease. The paper also noted that no patients developed new bleached lesions while on the therapy. My second point is that another paper also in FASAB way back in 2009, of which I didn't even know existed, showed that white hair in aging humans is also caused by increases in hydrogen peroxide in the epidermis. So therefore, you bring the two discoveries together and ta-da, you have a potential treatment for white and graying hair. My smart-ass wife wanted to know if I was going to go down to my lab and whip up a batch of pseudocatalase now that I knew what they used. 
and I told her I didn't need to because it is already commercially available. Yes, it didn't take long for companies on the web and other places to jump on the bandwagon. You can now get pseudocatalase cream if you don't mind paying through the nose and really want to sacrifice your hair to science. But I strongly recommend not doing that quite yet. As I have said previously, it is always wise to just wait and see if scientific claims are still true in a month or two or a year down the line. And it is sometimes dangerous not to wait for all the data to come in. Besides just the plausibility of the scientific claims that are already out there, there is also already controversy about which companies online are selling the real pseudocatalase used by Schaltreuter and who is not. I suspect that the FDA may be stepping in on this very soon if this keeps up. Schaltreuter says, quote, Copies of our pseudocatalase are advertised worldwide now. One ineffective copy of pseudocatalase cream plus calcium has been advertised by Northwestern University in Chicago, Illinois. Be aware of advertised pseudocatalase products where there are no peer-reviewed publications in the international dermatology journals that support or substantiate the efficacy of these products, unquote. Just to show you that scientific results are not always to be believed, a new article in the journal Biotechniques tells of a lab technician, not even one of the main scientists in the group, who, yes, made up data. A former tech at the North Carolina Digital Microfluidics Company, Advanced Liquid Logic, faked the results of federally funded HIV research, according to the Federal Office of Research Integrity. As a consequence, he will face increased supervision on federally funded research for at least the next three years. Matthew Poor falsified lab results in a June 2012 report and a July 2012 presentation to the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, according to the ORI's notice published in the Federal Record on April 30th. In addition, the falsified results were recorded in the company's laboratory records. Poor reportedly changed HIV viral load results for two patients from positive to negative and changed another result from negative to positive. In two other instances measured in the notice, Poor fabricated results from experiments in order to hide the fact that he had never performed them at all. In August 2012, Poor's employment with Advanced Liquid Logic ended shortly after these instances of misconduct were discovered. Again, the only point of this story is that somebody doesn't need a PhD to falsify data. They only need to want to rise up in a company in the ranks or even just keep their jobs a little longer. As part of a voluntary settlement, Poor has agreed to be supervised on any federally funded projects by any institution that employs him for the next three years and to exclude himself from any advisory role to the U.S. Public Health Service during that time. However, the chances of him actually getting a new job are slim to none, since now he can't exactly be completely trusted. Next story. According to the NIH, the quest for an AIDS vaccine has suffered another setback. The National Institute of Health announced last month that it had stopped immunizing volunteers with its anti-HIV vaccine because it had become clear that the vaccine simply just didn't bloody well work. Since the trial began in 2009, 1,250 volunteers had received the vaccine and 1,244 others had gotten a placebo. 
both as a series of shots over 24 weeks. Most of the participants were sexually active male homosexuals. Among volunteers who had been in the study for at least 28 weeks, 27 infections occurred in those getting the vaccine and 21 in placebo recipients. Of all study participants, regardless of how long they were in the study, 41 HIV infections showed up in vaccinated volunteers and 30 in those who got the placebo. The vaccine used a double-hit strategy designed to rev up the immune system. Three early shots were intended to prime the immune system. Then, 16 weeks later, the participants received a booster shot that delivered genetic material made up of molecules produced by HIV, with the goal of eliciting an immune response against the virus. The vaccine itself could not cause HIV infection because there were no actual viruses. NIH says that they will be trying new vaccines in the future, but this particular one seems to be a bust. The next story will hopefully make up for the seven-sexed tetrahymena bust from last month. This story from the journal Biology Letters has to do with cross-dressing cuttlefish. Now, cuttlefish are pretty amazing because they have the extraordinary ability to display intricate changes in color and shape, and they can utilize that as a form of visual communication. Not only that, but they're very smart. Their colors convey specific signals. For example, during courtship, aggression, or to fend off predators, they can change their color and the shape of their body. Although in an ideal world, communication signals among individuals would always be honest, deception can sometimes be fruitful. The deception risk is sometimes worth it when the benefits that can be gained from cheating are worth the risks of suffering the consequences if your fraud is discovered. Dr. Coulomb Brown and his colleagues from Macquarie University in Sydney describe how male cuttlefish deceive other males into believing they are actual females while at the same time trying to court a female. In this way, they can avoid being interrupted during their love dance. Brown noticed that in some instances when a male was courting a female in the presence of another male, the side of the courting male's body facing the other male would exhibit female coloration, while the side facing the female would display courtship signals. Now, to me, that's just bloody amazing. Like one of those half-men, half-women you used to see at sideshows and carnivals in Kansas in the 1930s. Anyway... To determine the frequency and success rate of these deceptions in different types of social groups, Brown and his team observed the visual displays of cuttlefish in the wild in 108 different courtship groups. They took photos of the main male in the group, that is the male that was performing the courtship display, and then of all the other individuals within the group. In addition, they made similar observations of courtship displays in captive individuals. The researchers observed many different types of social groups, some with more than one female and some with more than one male, but they only observed those deceptive tactics in groups where there was a male courting a single female in the presence of only one other competitor. This tactic was employed 39% of the time within the social group, and through observations on the captive cuttlefish, the investigators were able to confirm that successful mating occurred when this tactic was used. Their results suggest that cuttlefish, as I said before, are very smart. The authors even believe they are able to gauge how likely they are to get caught when using deception, 
since they only use this tactic in the presence of one other male when they are least likely to get caught, and they never use it in big groups. Okay, so the cuttlefish story may not be very titillating to you, but you got to admit it's pretty cool. Well, here's another animal story from the Journal of Experimental Biology from this month. Elephants only exercise at night. Okay, your first response may be, uh, yeah, right, so what? Why is that important? Well, for one thing, it may tell us a bit about dinosaurs and other equally large animals. Dr. Michael Rowe from Indiana State University has found that in large, hot-blooded animals that produce their own body heat from metabolism, bouts of exercise under sweltering sun in tropical conditions can be potentially lethal. In short, if an elephant does aerobics in the sun long enough, it will probably die. Equally, the extinct, hot-blooded Edmontosaurus dinosaur that had a decreased skin surface area to body mass ratio compared to elephants was likely to find it more difficult to get rid of excess heat produced during exercise. However, no one has ever conclusively proved this. So Dr. Rowe and company decided to examine elephants in the hopes of better understanding dinosaurs. Rowe exercised two elephants by walking them around a closed circuit for about 20 minutes under the full sun over a whole range of temperatures, from 8 degrees centigrade all the way up to 34 degrees centigrade. By measuring their core and skin temperatures, as well as the walking speed and the environmental factors such as the air temperature and solar radiation, the team could then calculate how much heat they produced from increased metabolism and how much heat they lost to or gained from the environment. Rowe found that the elephant's metabolic rate increased two to two and a half fold regardless of whether the animal exercised in the winter, spring, or summer. However, like you would expect in the hot summer, radiation from the sun and the environment meant that the elephant's skin reached the same temperature as their core body, 35 degrees Celsius compared with about 24 degrees in November, meaning that 100% of the heat generated by exercising was stored in the core tissues, with the body temperature going up by about 2 degrees centigrade. From their findings, the authors could predict the limitations this put on diurnal activity in both elephants and big, hot-blooded dinosaurs. For elephants, about four hours of exercising in the sun would see their body temperature steadily increase to a lethal 43 degrees Celsius, and then they would keel over and die. Similarly, something bigger than an elephant, like an Edmontosaurus, would likely last only about three and a half hours. According to Rowe, at night, without solar radiation heating up their skin, both elephants and endothermic dinosaurs could exercise for up to eight hours without overheating. Mind you, I have no idea why an elephant or a big dinosaur would want to exercise, but I guess it's actually nice to know this. Onward and upward. Did you ever wonder why humans and not many other animals have such big brains? This is a really good question because it relates directly to whether or not we are ever going to find any other intelligent life out there in the universe. To be self-aware, you really need a big brain. Why are they so rare in nature here on Terra? Well, one hypothesis has been that big brains come at a price. Big brains use up a huge amount of energy. And the bigger the brain, presumably, the more energy is needed. 
Even though our brains account for only about 2% of our body mass, humans use up to 20% of our total energy expenditure on the brain. So there's a theory called the expensive tissue hypothesis that suggests that the size of the brain is part of a trade-off between the advantages of greater cognitive ability and the energy demands that having a bigger brain entail. Well, it's only a theory, but this month in the journal Current Biology, Dr. Alexander Kartoshal of the University of Uppsala has decided to examine the validity of this hypothesis. Kartoshal says that a key prediction from the model is that Developing a bigger brain should come at the expense of other tissues, most notably the gut tissues, the other most energetically expensive tissue in our bodies. Well, a number of studies have shown that for many animals, brain size and gut size are negatively correlated. No one has done experiments to test whether evolving a bigger brain affects the size of the gut. Kottershall decided to determine if the effects of artificial selection on brain size would support the theory. First, his group bred multiple generations of guppies, and for each generation, they selected the individuals with the largest and those with the smallest brains, thus creating what he called an up-selected group and a down-selected strain of fish. His group found that after only two generations, the brain size within the up-selected group had already increased by 10%, showing that brain size is a trait that can rapidly change during evolution. Then, they determine whether the fish with larger brains are smarter. Guppies have a crude sense of numbers, so you could put the fish to the test using simple numerical learning tasks. They found that fish with bigger brains did better at the counting tasks than their down-selected counterparts. This result supports the idea that a bigger brain gave them a cognitive advantage. Furthermore, when Kottershall weighed the guts of the fish from the two different groups, He found that the larger-brained fish had 8 to 20% smaller guts. This result demonstrates that acquiring a bigger brain leads to having a smaller gut and shows that the increase in brain size is the result of a trade-off between cognition and metabolic cost. There seems to be another expense of having a big brain. Kottershall found that the bigger-brained fish seem to have fewer offspring per generation than the smaller-brained counterparts. This suggests that increasing brain size comes at the expense of the reproductive process, as well as the gut size, I guess. For those of you who are fans of the original Star Trek TV show, this next news story may make you think of a Horta. For those of you not familiar with the original Trek, the Horta was an underground burrowing animal that was terrorizing miners in the episode Devil in the Dark. Why do I bring it up at all? Well, the most noteworthy thing about the Horta was that it was not a carbon-based life form. It was an organism who has a silicon-based biology. For those of you who are not chemists, biologists, or geologists, carbon and silicon are both very special in the periodic table because they're able to form very complex compounds because of their ability to make four symmetric bonds. It has long been hypothesized that life could be generated using complex silicon molecules that mimic those of organic life. Well, Dr. Lee Cronin of Glasgow University has decided that he is not going to wait until somebody digs up silicon-based life on a moon of Jupiter. He is going to create it himself. In the journal The Scientist, he describes this work. He's been working on generating what he calls 
inorganic chemical cells. He says, quote, What we are trying to do is create self-replicating, evolving inorganic cells that would essentially be alive. You could call it inorganic biology. Unquote. The cells can be compartmentalized by creating internal membranes that control the passage of materials and energy through them, just like real cells, and they can have several chemical processes going on within those isolated organelles, again, just like biological cells. Cronin says the cells, which can also store electricity, could potentially be used in all sorts of applications in medicine as sensors or to confine chemical reactions. Quote, the grand aim is to construct complex chemical cells with lifelike properties that could help us understand how life emerged and also to use this approach to define a new technology based upon evolution in the material world, a kind of inorganic living technology. Bacteria are essentially single-celled microorganisms made from organic chemicals. So why can't we make microorganisms from inorganic chemicals and allow them to evolve? Unquote. Yeah, good question. I don't know. Could it be because it's stupid and dangerous? I mean, frankly, it sounds like one of those high-tech horror novels from Michael Crichton, where a group is doing something for the good of humanity until things go horribly wrong. I hope that whatever this crazy Scott creates does not escape and get out of control or simply become a new bane upon our already stressed Earth. We could really do without micro-hortas running amok out there. The final story of the night is some really cool news. Last month in the journal Nature, it was reported by Dr. Jessica Alfoldi, a researcher at MIT, that the genome of the coelacanth has been sequenced and analyzed for the first time. You may remember coelacanths from grade school or high school as those rare living fossils that were caught accidentally by African fishermen decades ago. Well, they're not quite as rare as were first thought. In fact, there was a photo of a diver with a coelacanth on the cover of Nature last month. When, when I saw that, I asked the marine ecologist who was down the hall from me whether it was photoshopped, and he just stared at me and said no. And I said naively, but I thought that they were rare. How did they get a photo like that? And he said... Yeah, they were rare until we found out where they live off the coast of Africa, and now we can find them whenever we want. Well, that was news to me. I don't know how big they actually get, full-sized, by the way, but the one that I saw on the cover in the photo of Nature was almost as big as the diver, which had to be at least a good five feet, so they get pretty big. Well, despite what my colleague said about coelacanths being less rare, Alfoldi waited almost a decade to start her sequencing because she never had enough DNA samples, and she needed the process to be as efficient as possible. She said, quote, Once we had them, we were worried that we wouldn't have enough DNA to sequence using the old Sanger technology, so we waited for the next generation sequencing technologies to come up to speed. Then we waited even longer because we just had one shot at it, so we didn't want to screw it up, unquote. Even after all that waiting, there was still not as much high molecular weight DNA as she and her team would have liked. The researchers wanted to sequence the fish's DNA to determine whether its genome has actually evolved as little as its prehistoric outward appearance would suggest. The modern fish looks eerily similar to its fossil, and the team found that the coelacanth's protein-coding genes are evolving significantly more slowly than those of other four-limbed vertebrates. 
four-limbed vertebrates are called tetrapods. And while the rest of the genome is changing at a kind of normal rate, the scientists suggest that this could be because the fish lives hundreds of feet below the ocean surface where conditions have remained pretty constant over the last few million years and where there are a few predators. Due to its inaccessible habitat, the coelacanth has been presumed extinct for 70 million years until a South African trawler actually dredged it up in 1938 to net. In addition, when you compare the RNA sequence data of the coelacanth to the West African lungfish, the group found that the coelacanth is not the closest living relatives to tetrapods. It actually appears to be the lungfish, although the lungfish genome has not been sequenced because it's gigantic, it's huge. It has 50 to 100 billion bases in it. The researchers also pinpointed genes and regulatory elements of the coelacanth involved in the adaptation of animals to dry land, since the fish was clearly moving in that direction, since it has fins that look like short limbs. And it was found that the genes involved in fin development, for example, were lost, while those coding for the urea cycle were altered. In water, animals can excrete pure ammonia because it's diluted before it reaches toxic levels. But on land, animals produce the less toxic compounds, urea or uric acid. This project, along with the one sequencing woolly mammoths, may be the closest that we we're ever going to get to sequencing actual fossils. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Don't trust any male cuttlefish. Keep away from Scottish hortas. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Jim, sir, what can I say? Rounding off May 2013, you are a star, sir. Thank you so much. That is it. That's today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Do stick around for next week's show. But until then, I would just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.